Welcome to Why in the World. My name is Ben Shepherd. Firstly, thank you so much for all your kind words about the Elise Downing episode. If you've not heard that yet, go back and have a listen and also make sure that you are subscribed. Today, we have Pip Stewart. Honestly, Pip is one of those people that doesn't come around very often. She truly is one of a kind. The easiest way for me to explain to you, if you don't know anything about Pip, what sort of person she is, is just by reading her Instagram bio. It reads, I battled a flesh-eating parasite, cycled halfway around the world and paddled through the Amazon. At the end of this conversation, there is a really special moment that I feel really privileged that Pip chose to share with us. So here she is, an adventurer to the core and a very special human. Her name is Pip Stewart and she is on Why in the World. We have got Pip Stewart with us. Hey, Pip. Hello, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Firstly, thank you very much for um, traipsing across London and coming back to Fulham. I actually used to live here. I did. You know what? I've just moved to the coast, so I was like, I need to get out of London, and you drag me back. I drag you oh, back. God. I drag you back for a conversation. Pip, you're the sort of person that um, I would describe as a glutton for punishment. You go and do things and then continually go back and do them. Yeah, I, I suppose, but by accident, though, Ben, that's the thing. It's um, usually someone suggests something. I'm okay. like, that, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> um, and for me, I'm so driven by stories and finding unusual places and, and people to talk to that any sort of unusual means of travel I'm usually bang up for, which is why I've ended up cycling and kayaking and... Uh, yeah, glutton for punishment probably is the right word, but with I, the meaning behind it. I really love the way that your bio starts on your website. It says, in 2013, I cycled home from Malaysia to London. I like the way that you say, I cycled home. Like, you could have just taken a flight. Could have done. That would have been much easier. Could have done. We worked out because it took us 13 months and I have since flown back to Malaysia and it takes 13 hours. So for every hour on the flight, it was like one month on the ground. But oh, God. The amount we learned though, Ben, it, that was the thing for me. It's like the stories you uncover, the people you get to chat to, the things that you see... You just don't see that on a plane, so... So it's 10,000 miles, 26 countries. It was a few years back now, and in brackets on your website also, it says, yes, my ass was very sore. <laughs> Actually, if anyone's thinking of doing this, I can thoroughly recommend cake as okay. training. I think um, I have more of a padded bottom, shall we say, than my partner who has less of a padded bottom, and I suffered definitely less than he did. Yeah, I would imagine that's only just recovered. Yeah. <laughs> it, it took a while, but we had a nice leather saddle, which slowly sort of moulded its its shape to my bottom. So that, that helped. So talk to me about where this idea was kind of born. So I was working as a journalist over in Malaysia, and my partner and I had always talked about coming back overland. And initially, we were looking at buses and trains and things like that. And uh, Charlie said to me one day, hey, Pip, how do you uh, fancy cycling back? And I just looked at him like he'd gone absolutely potty. I'm like, no, can't do it. The most I've cycled was around uni. I'm definitely not an athlete. Like, this is not something I've trained for or anything. Um, but then we sort of eventually decided, actually, why not? What's the worst that's going to happen? Um, I literally did zero training. The first time I got on my bike was the day before we set off. Um, and the first time I'd ever ridden a fully laden bike was as we set off out of Kuala Lumpur, um, up sort of like a motorway equivalent, thinking, what the hell have I done? And you know what? Initially, I... I was just really embarrassed because essentially I told all my friends and family, you know what, I'm going to cycle back from Malaysia to London. Absolutely doable. And 
three weeks in, we hit what can only be described as like a small mogul. It wasn't even like a hill. Yeah, I got off my bike, I cried, I couldn't get up it. Um, I tried to break up with Charlie on the side of the road. That was that was a real low oh, point. Lads. Yeah, I was like, look, I can't do this. You this is your fault. Yeah, it was literally like that. I was like, you picked the wrong girl. If you think I can do this, poor guy. I literally had a tantrum on him. Um, but he sort of sat me down. We were there for like two hours. So this was a full oh, on wow. fallout. Um, but he just said to me, look, Pip, this is not a physical journey. This is a mental one. And I think that was the piece of advice that has stuck with me since and all my journey since. I've just reminded myself, look, if I can sit at a desk from nine to five, I can sit on a sodding bike. I'm, I'm not the fastest traveler ever, but, you know, I will get there. And I think that was it for me. It was like, OK, this is a mental challenge. This isn't a physical one. Had he done stuff like this before then? Crazy yeah. Stuff like this. So he's a bit like you, Ben. He's, he's tall, <laughs> thin and like, um, you know, athletic type. And he's just, yeah, he, he's done loads of marathons and long cycling events and I hadn't really done any of this so we were literally very different levels of fitness um, when we set off but by the end kind of caught up with him. Do you think that's kind of why you said yes though because you were kind of completely in the dark? Yeah it's often the way isn't it it's just for me it was like the opportunity for adventure and I love um, I've always loved traveling always loved traveling to random places and yeah it was a kind of that personal challenge as well like do you know what? Could I do this? I've, I've heard other people do this. Why can't I do it? Well, exactly. And I suppose not many people could even ever say in their whole life they've been to 26 countries. And in 13 months, you did 26 countries, which is mind boggling. What was the difference like traveling through those countries on a bike? I think the great thing about the bike is that it's fast enough to get you there and slow enough to see things. So you're literally you feel things like you the gradient of a road for example you know the Mm. slopes and the and the downhills and the smells and i just really enjoyed that part of it and then you do have the vulnerability that comes with that and i remember when we were in uzbekistan we were just cycling along and suddenly we heard a load of shouting and it was a group of people at a wedding invited us into this wedding and they're like come come bear in mind we are sweating it was like 40 degrees like my my white shirt was sodden with sweat it was disgusting I was smelly um, and yet here we find ourselves dragged into the middle of an Uzbek wedding uh, welcomed like old friends and those are the experiences that I just wouldn't have had because we we're in this very random town which wasn't on a tourist trail it was you know, a functioning town in Uzbekistan. Um, and we had the most incredible experience off the back of it. So I think that's what cycling and traveling at a slower pace gives you. It's that power to connect really to the natural environment and, and other people around you. And when you're doing something like that, I think once in a lifetime is a phrase that is actually thrown around quite a lot in this time. Lots of people say, oh, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. This sort of stuff and the stuff and the experiences you had on that journey truly were once in a lifetime. How many memories have you got from that journey? How how many memories that you just you forget and then pop back into your head and you just think, oh my God, how amazing was that? Yeah, you're right. And it's one of those things where you'll be having a cup of tea and it will take you right back to Central Asia. And you're like, oh, do you remember when we did this? Or yeah, literally you can go through your day and little things will spark these memories of um, the amazing things that happened. And do you know what? I think it's a really privileged position to have been in and I'm very thankful that we did it. As you say, the adventure of a lifetime. And to share with someone else as well, that must be special. Yeah, yeah. Cause, but although sometimes when you're having a really bad day, you're like, should we just get back on the bikes? Because I think in a sense, life was very simple on the road because you get from A to B, um, that, that's your day. You don't have to achieve anything else. And there's an element of simplicity, which I really enjoy. And I think... 
if people are truly honest, I think a lot of these adventures are probably about escapism of some form or another, because actually I didn't have to deal with the, the daily life, the uh, earning money to pay rent or whatever it is. And you can live a very selfish and self-indulgent life. So there is an element of that, mm. um, which is always quite hard to come back from. That is something that keeps coming up, though, that, and it's a really cool point to make, is that a lot of people that do these long, long challenges where you're out there for months and months and months do say, I just wanted to get away from something. I just wanted to leave. We had Elise Downing on and she said, I just really didn't like my job. So I thought I'd just go for a run and just get away from it all. Is that one reason that you thought of doing it? Well, I think for us, it had a very practical element, as in we needed to get home. <laughs> I still I still withhold you could have got a plane. <laughs> but we didn't know what we were coming back to. That's okay. the other thing. And it's when you're, I think, at moments of like life transition, when you're like, oh my gosh, what is the next step? I don't really know. Um, and I think that, that sort of was partly played into it. Mm. And I don't know how you feel about this, Ben, but I think we're often sold a bit of a lie in society in that, we kind of get out of school or uni or whatever you got to in terms of education. And we're told you can do anything you like. Mm. Um, and actually, I think often you can't. And it's quite hard kind of, I don't know, reconciling opportunity and reality. And that can yeah. be a bit tricky sometimes. I think you're totally right with that. I think you're brought up to, I think society dictates what you should be a lot of the time. And I think, I think you can do what you want. But I think that very often people don't. And that's because they're scared. That's because society tells them they can't. And with stuff like this and with what you did, I think actually you do show you can pretty much do anything if you put your mind to it. And if you've just got a little bit of grit and determination, because you just wanted to keep those pedals going to get back from Malaysia, basically. Yeah. And actually, that, that's bang on, because I think it's, it is about grit. And that's what I learned when I had that meltdown three weeks in. It was like... <laughs> Do you know what? If I decide that I want to do nine to five on a bicycle every day, I can achieve halfway around the world. Yeah. And that's mental. If you break these challenges down into smaller things, I think it's absolutely achievable. And I suppose as well, like if you were in London, all you'd be doing is going to work nine to five. So do you just treat cycling like a job, I suppose, at that point? Yeah. Yeah. And we were, we were very flexible with it as well, though, because if we met someone who said, oh, come and come and stay with us. And we weren't trying to get back in any particular time, mm. um, mainly because we didn't have anything to come back to. It was like, what are we going to do for jobs? Um, and the nice thing about the bicycle is that it's pretty, pretty cheap to live because your pedal power. So that's you're not paying for any transport in a sense. And we were wild camping and we were eating um, you know, pretty much whatever we could cook in in a, a cooker on the side of the road. So we weren't we weren't being flashy at all. So I want to go back to just some of your best memories then, because we're not going to stay on this for too long because there's so much more I want to talk about. But your best memories of that specific, I want to call it a challenge, but I think it was more of a journey. Mm. I'd have to say we there was a place called the Asi Plateau in Kazakhstan and we hadn't seen anyone for days. And it was just looking up at the sky at night with the stars just sort of illuminated, twinkling in the, in the oh, it was just absolutely magical. And I think for me, it's that element of self-sufficiency, you know, getting water from rivers and filtering it and learning that you can survive on your own. And I think there's something really powerful about being in wild places and in nature. And when I think back on that trip, it's those moments of isolation in a sense that really teach you um, what it is to be human. So it kind of takes you back to sort of that primitive level, if you will. Mm. Highlight, low light. Oh, it would have to be 
crying on the side of the road. Okay. I mean, in that moment, I literally thought, right, I'm cycling to the nearest airport. I'm breaking up with my partner. Thank you. Off I go. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> it was very dramatic. The fact that that happened three weeks in, though, <laughs> and not like, I don't know, eight months in yeah. is pretty remarkable. I suppose, but at that point, when you were eight months in, you would had so many experiences, you probably didn't want it to end. You probably mm. just wanted it to carry on. Well, we turned up at, um, we finished at the Houses of Parliament, so under Big Ben, basically. Oh, and amazing. all our family were there with this big banner saying, welcome home. And I think that was when it really hit. It's like, oh my gosh, like we set off from the Twin Towers in, in Malaysia, Petronas Towers, and we end up at Westminster. I was like, we did that. And that for me was just this moment of, oh my gosh, because... I don't think in life we celebrate success very often, but when you've got like a team of people celebrating something you've done, I was just like, that was a really humbling moment that actually brought back, God, no, that 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 dedication, that grit, as you talked about earlier, that kind of got us halfway around the world. Did it feel real? No, no. And then the weirdest thing was that I went home with my parents and Charlie went home with his and we'd spent 13 months 24-7 with each other. And it sort of felt like I'd lost a limb. I was like, well, where, where's Charlie? Mm, um, yeah, it must be so weird. Did you get that sort of post-challenge, post-journey depression? Oh, yeah. yeah, especially because at that point I was like, okay, great, but what am I going to do now? Like, how am I going to earn a living? Can, can I cycle back? I mean, what? Yeah, so I think you're very much hit with that reality of, whoa. And that's always what happens when you come back from these challenges. Everyone says, what's next? Mm. It's like, Oh my gosh, I, I actually don't know. But then you feel kind of forced to have an answer a lot of the time, mm. I think. And you gave it a few years and then you did do something else. Where did you go next? Last year, 2018, um, I kayaked with two of my friends, Laura Bingham and Ness Knight, down the Essequibo uh, River in Guyana, guided by the YY uh, Indigenous Community. I was literally on um, YouTube before this interview going, how do I say the name of that river? <laughs> Essequibo. And that looked absolutely extraordinary, that journey. Oh, uh, talk about a journey of a lifetime. That was a journey like no other. Um, terrifying, to be honest, Ben. Absolutely terrifying. But I learned so much because we started sort of, we had to get to the source of this river, which is up in the mountains of Guyana. Um, and we were led by the YY, who just are experts at survival in jungle environments. So just learning how to, you know, camp, how to set up camp, how to put your hammocks up in the jungle, like everything, fishing, hunting, not that I hunted anything. Um, Yeah, I I felt very conflicted actually about that, coming from a very uh, easy life where you can walk into the supermarket and buy whatever you want to suddenly having to... um, hunt and fish for your food it was a very different sort of environment literally having to be completely self-sufficient yeah so we'd taken some freeze-dried food and things with us as like supplements um but then yeah we were eating fish we were catching birds and and whatever else uh, the yy could find so so before this then you'd obviously done quite a lot of cycling your fitness must have been amazing when you got back from the ten thousand miles you must have been like right up there fitness wise had you spent any time on the water with a paddle Mm, No, so this was the thing about it. We were all sort of very much beginner kayakers. And I think that's partly why this river has never been attempted. One, because it's Yeah, I should say you were the first people to do this. Yeah. So it was dense, remote jungle. Uh, We were there for nearly two and a half, three months. 
Um, so that would put people off. But also, if you're into like big white water, you'll take one look at the Essequibo and go, hang on a minute, this okay. isn't enough of a challenge. Um, but for a beginner who has done no white water, um, there was enough white water to make it look absolutely terrifying because there were rapids and waterfalls. Um, and what we found was we spent about six to eight months properly intensely training in the UK. So training in, in Wales um, for a summer expedition in Guyana. It was uh, very different. Whereabouts did you get your training in? Uh, so in Wales? We went to the River Dee. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's actually where I live pretty much, oh, the River Dee. Yeah. Have, have you been on the water? I much? have um, been on a boat that takes me on a tour up the Dee, but I have not, um, and I've swam in it, but I haven't ah. uh, I haven't kayaked on it at all. Oh, no, no. It's, be- it's a beautiful river. Yeah, um, it's gorgeous. It is gorgeous, to be fair. You should fair. get out there. Yeah, I should definitely do that. So yeah, the River Dee is totally different um, to the river that you were on. Um, I mean, totally, like <laughs> it couldn't be further from the river that you were on. Yeah, dry to suits. do something before anyone else has ever done it must have felt quite special. It, it was. Um, and what I, what I enjoyed most about it, I think, was just um, because we did it in collaboration with the YY and it was talking to the YY and seeing how it was just such a group expedition in a mm. sense and how much it meant... Uh, for the people of Guyana as well, that it was this really nice um, collaboration because hand on heart, we wouldn't have got to the source without the YY. I mean, I don't think, yeah, we would have, yeah, it was just such an amazing trip and learning um, from them and sharing ideas was just, for me, the absolute highlight. What do you bring back to then the Western world, I suppose, from coming back from a trip like that, supported by the YY? Does, Does it give you a different perspective on life? Very much so. And I remember going to the supermarket when I got back and I was just thinking, whoa, like, what is all of this? And actually, even when we got off the river, because we'd spent two and a half months sort of literally just flowing down this river, we'd seen very few people. And then suddenly we go to the capital, Georgetown, and I see a billboard for the first time in two and a half months. And I literally, I'd forgotten about billboards. And I'm like, oh, marketing and advertising and buying things we really don't need. Mm. Um, and then ironically, on the opposite side of the billboard was a graveyard. And for me, that, that symbolism will always stick with me because I'm, I felt like on the river, um, I truly learned what it was to be human in a sense. And you're very in tune with nature and you kind of realise what you actually need to survive is, is very little. And yet in modern life, we've sort of added in all this stuff like yeah. tech and... Um, consumerism and products and you know eyelash curlers i mean who came up when did eyelash curlers become a thing we care too much i think we care too much i think we care too much about what other people think obviously what other people think is very very important but i think that sometimes we can just get completely engulfed in social media we can get engulfed in all of that that must have felt pretty amazing just to be away from everything for that amount of time Although we were trying to broadcast it on social yeah. media, so that was the thing. It was it was this weird dichotomy between being completely alone and isolated, and then we had something called a BGAN, which is essentially like a satellite system which you can turn on, uh, and it will give you sort of like Wi-Fi connection and things like that. So every now and again, we turn it on and upload things to social media. So you're uh, on one hand in yes, the most that, remote place I've ever been, and on the other hand, you're I'm on communicating on Instagram. Um, <laughs> And it, it, that was a weird kind of mind scramble, to be honest. How did the two things connect then? How did they, how were they similar? How were they different? Being on the bike, being on the river, what were the similarities there? I think it's that sense of calmness that you feel when you're in nature or you're surrounded by wild places. I think inherently, if any of us have had a bad day, 
Um, I always find going for a walk or being in nature will kind of make it feel better. And we're seeing a lot more coming out now about the connection between mental health and wild places. And I think I felt more calm in life generally when I've been exercising every day in nature. So that okay. it makes that I'd say is a, a very similar thing. Um, the other thing about these adventures is you have a chance to sit with yourself. Um, which we very rarely do, I think, in modern life. Um, so I've trained as a meditation teacher, so I'm probably Amazing. a bit more introspective than most in that sense. But yeah, literally just having hours and hours and hours a day just to think um, is a really rare thing. What are the benefits of meditation? Just go in there quickly. Ah, oh, well, it's. Um, I think it's not about sort of. I think the misconception is people think, oh, well, I've got to stop my thoughts. Um, but that's like, that's impossible. I don't think you can do that, can you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like things just keep popping. Oh, I've got to clean yeah. the dishwasher. God darn it, what am I having for yeah. tea? Um, but it's, I think it's learning about how to control your thoughts and how to get a handle on them and like recognise what keeps coming up for you. And that's for me the most exciting thing about meditation. And um, I don't think it has to be like sitting there and meditating cross-legged. And I think that's what I find most enjoyable about these journeys is that for me, uh, movement is a form of meditation so my absolute favorite thing to do is just go for a walk in nature and, and listen and be more aware um so i think in a sense meditation can be sort of what you want it to be because i um I, I if someone asks me do i meditate i probably say no but then when you think about it and when i think about it people always ask me do you wear headphones when you run and i always say no i don't and so why well i like to be with my thoughts and i suppose essentially that's essentially what I'm doing. Mm. I'm meditating. I'm at peace, at one with myself at that point when I'm running. And I, I think sometimes that's the only time you get away from from everything, from everything that's going on in the outside world. So maybe, maybe yeah, I do or meditate. I mean, I it's a case of flow state as well. So yeah. if you're doing something you really enjoy, whether that's painting or writing or, or creating or running, whatever it is, I think when you're fully involved in that activity, that in itself is a form of like meditation or at least like a quietening of the mind. I want to talk a little bit about the first line on your Instagram bio. The first line reads, survived. A flesh-eating parasite. Mm. Just go with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know where to start. Oh, dear. So, Ben, I've got this scar on my neck, um, which looks suspiciously like a love bite, actually. <laughs> so I've been getting a lot of funny looks from people okay. recently, and I kind of have to feel the need to tell them it's not medical. Hang on, it is medical. It's not Just kinky. see someone on the tube. <laughs> Look, mate, I know what it looks like, but it's not that. Yeah, yeah back it up, back it up. Um, but yes, essentially, I brought back a very small souvenir with me from Guyana, which was a sandfly bite. And over the course of a couple of months, this bite um, started getting bigger and deeper and would alternate between scabbing, pussing over and then scabbing again. Um, at one point, it smelt, which was pretty disgusting. Um, but I went to the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London and... They did a biopsy and they essentially said I had something called leishmaniasis, which was not what I wanted um, because that's a, a flesh-eating parasite. And what was more scary is that of all the dangers in the jungle, like we paddled past caiman and there were snakes, spiders, scorpions, waterfalls, rapids, you, you name it, the dangers were there. Um, but I'd overlooked this tiny little sandfly and that was the thing that really brought me down and... Um, the treatment for it was three weeks on an IV um, being pumped full of a toxic med uh, medicine that dates back from the 1940s. Um, and it just left me broken by the end of this three weeks. And I messaged Faye, who is a lady who joined us for a section on the river in Guyana. And I said, Faye, have you ever had these lesions? 
And she said, oh, yeah, I had them on my legs and I put burning cow fat on them in order to get rid of them. I couldn't believe it. She was like literally burning herself. I was using a form of chemical therapy from the 1940s. And then my friend Philip um, in the YY community said that he puts crushed turtle shell into his lesions if he ever gets them, which might actually fix the problem. But the doctors are saying that it's a risk of secondary infection um, that's a problem and that it can spread to the nose and the soft palate and slowly eat away at your face. So there's different... God. Yeah. And it, it's, it's sort of... I bet you're there like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And especially there was, there's a strain of leishmaniasis that will kill you within two years if you don't treat it. So lucky I didn't have that. But I did have the type that could potentially spread to my nose and my soft palate, which is why essentially they had to nuke it. And I don't know, I just, the more I looked into it, Ben, the more I was like, the accident of birth, the fact that I had a passport from the UK meant I could walk into the NHS, get it treated for free. And my friends in Guyana are either putting crushed turtle shell or burning themselves into it, both of which might work, but there's just definitely not enough research there. And there aren't like treatments that are suitable for remote environments because that's where most people get it. Um, And it's second biggest killer after malaria, parasitic killer. um, And it's a neglected tropical disease because the people who get it are poor. How are you now? Oh, God. Um, a better, better. Okay. I mean, the, the effects are still kind of going on. I'm not as energetic as I used to be, but as you can probably tell... You're pretty energetic. <laughs> you're pretty energetic. You must have been... I'm bouncing, bouncing on But um, yeah, I just got, it's got under my skin in a massive way, this issue, quite literally. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe the injustice of it all. So mm. I'm on a little one-woman campaign at the moment to be like, guys, there's a sand fly bite. It's really dangerous. Be well, careful. I think there's, there's no one, obviously, better set to do something about it and say something and have a voice about it because you're somebody that's suffered from it obviously and you're somebody that has also experienced what they experience firsthand so you know the environment they're living in you know the treatments they've got I think sometimes with some things people will campaign for them but will have no experience of what they're campaigning for you can't you couldn't have more experience of what you're campaigning for so is this something that you're gonna you're gonna try and push as much as you can now definitely and I think I think that was one of my big learnings coming off the back of the Essequibo trip because as I said I had a lot of time to sit with myself and I think in life in any situation that you face you can either kind of accept a situation or seek to change it um and I think we can all do that a little bit in daily life as well so it might be like rudeness or homelessness or bullying or whatever it is that kind of gets under your skin can you shift the dial on it a little bit, whether that's a conversation, a poem or, you know, even something bigger and more substantial. But I think we underestimate the power of the individual to do things. And, you know, if you light a fire in someone else and they light a fire in someone else, there's, there's real power in that. Yeah, definitely. Do you see yourself as a little bit of a messenger when it comes to that sort of thing? <laughs> I know that, that, that I know that might make you feel a little bit awkward, but I know people that when I've told, oh, we're having Pip on, they'll be like, oh, I follow her Instagram. Like, she's made me do this sort of thing. I, she makes me want to get outside. Aww. Do you think that's a really important message that you can convey and you feel like maybe you need to convey? Um, I, I don't try and seek to do that. I guess what I, I try and do is show what I love to do. And I think the best thing is I like, I like to cheerlead for other people because I think actually... If you're working at your best, if you're doing the things that light you up, you're going to light other people up. Absolutely. Um, and so maybe that's it. Maybe that I'm, I'm doing something that I feel really privileged and lucky to do, which really lights me up. And whether that's art or creativity or podcasting or whatever it is that 
you really kind of feel is inherently you. Um, I, try, I guess I try and want people to do more of that. Hopefully your passion for something will become their passion for that, that thing as well. Yeah, what it, whatever it is for the individual. So so your Instagram also is like, um, I feel like the most jealous person in the world sometimes when I'm looking at it and you're in New Zealand on a paddleboard with the mountains surrounding you in a lake. Being able to experience some of these things and go into some of these places must be absolutely unbelievable. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I feel really um, lucky and I get a lot of people saying, oh my gosh, how, how have you got to this position? And I think it's, um, I, I don't know, I guess what I've always done is try to do things that I've really enjoyed inherently. So I'll, I'll get somewhere and I used to, to like freelance for free or internship for free and, you know, literally just try and talk to as many people as possible. And I think it's really easy to look at Instagram and think, God, you know, how, how does she do all of that? And you don't see maybe the 15 the years. Yeah, 15 yeah. years of work that have gone into that. Um, but again, Instagram is like both my best friend and I think it's a very dangerous tool as well. And I think when you look at people on Instagram, it's kind of have that slightly removed, um, the highlights reel. And I do try and be a bit more real on it. Um, but inevitably, I'm not necessarily going to post you know, my hangover face. Maybe I should. Maybe I should be posting more hangover faces. No, um, I think you are. I think you are very good, to be fair, on there. But I think I think you're correct as well with what you say in terms of you should treat Instagram as a highlight reel, whether a lot of the time you're using it or just looking at it because it can get way too much. And I find myself going on my phone constantly, 24-7. Like, I had this thing recently where I'm training and I'm thinking I need to check my Instagram. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, put your phone down. Like, this is a time for you to train. You're doing this for something. Just put your phone down. Yeah. It's really hard It's mental, isn't it? And I remember in the jungle, I was on Instagram and I was getting jealous. I'm like, hang on a coffin. I'm in the jungle. (laughs) I'm in the jungle. And I'm looking at people on Instagram going, God, they're having a great time. Like, Pip, you're in the friggin' jungle. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? It's (laughs) so hard though, isn't it? Because it's so ingrained in our culture now, this whole Instagram, Twitter, everything. It's just ingrained and it's like inherently with us, I think. It's sometimes hard to just look up. Yeah, but you know what I was saying the other day is that I kind of think if looking at my content makes you feel bad unfollow me and likewise for anyone else if if you're looking at people's accounts and they make you feel bad or uncomfortable or weird just don't follow them or the other thing I try and use is if someone makes me jealous if if I'm looking at a picture or something I'm going god I'm really jealous of that and try and figure out why like what is it about that is it that they're leading a life more adventurous or have they written a book or have they done something that I want to be doing and try and funnel that into a more productive kind of energy rather than that negative oh god life's crap yeah definitely Um, i just want to ask about sort of your goals what do you want to do in the future is it more challenges is it writing a book i know you do poetry as well is it inspiring people to get outdoors i guess everything i do ben is probably focused around connection so the reason i love travel is it connects me to myself to other people and the world around me And I suppose if you talk about going forward, I want to be doing more of that. So you mentioned poetry. I absolutely love it because I think the turn of a phrase and the power of a word to inspire people to action is just, oh, it's succulent. It's one of the most beautiful things that I can imagine doing. Um, So definitely more writing, more poetry. Um, I really want to try and get a documentary off the ground on neglected tropical diseases because 
it's an issue that I think actually why isn't more attention being paid to this and I think what I realized on my Essequibo journey halfway through is I looked back at my Instagram and I went oh my gosh it's selfie after selfie after selfie and as a journalist and inherently someone who wants to tell other people's stories I'd realized I was really failing at what it was that I was trying to do I should have been telling the stories better of our guides of the people on the river of the future of the Amazon and yet on social media I'd just been presenting myself so that was a really powerful wake up call to what I don't want to be doing um and I think if anyone's listening having like a really tough time or a negative experience that they're going through it's like well, you can even turn that into a positive you just have to try and find the kind of the the positive in that somehow did you write whilst you were out there yeah so i wrote every night for a couple of hours in the hammock and i'm actually trying to turn that into a book at the moment um that's pretty amazing yeah for you as like a journal as well as well as for other people this might be putting you on the spot a little bit but have you got anything that you wrote out there that maybe we could end this with Okay, so I have not something I wrote out there, but since I finished my treatment for the flesh-eating parasite, because okay. um, I kind of think that everyone has the power to teach you something. Well, everyone and everything. And I thought maybe one way to deal with the implications of this flesh-eating parasite was to write it a love letter. Yeah, I sound like a crazed hippie at this point in time. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> ben is looking at me as a No, I'm not. I love it. I think this is brilliant. <laughs> I think this is a brilliant ending, so whenever you're ready. All right. You ate away at me, or tried to at least. Piece by piece, you tore my flesh for lunch and considered my nose a potential light snack. Something for later, perhaps. An unusual choice of feast, British meat, a rarity. I wouldn't say delicacy, though, although delicate indeed what lies beneath all of us. Flesh, bones, the beating fear of silence. Yet somehow we found each other, entwined over a poorly laid spread. You were rude, if I'm honest. Turned up unannounced. I hadn't got much in, except my neck. And that was pretty unwashed. Salty mind. It was the best I could do at such short notice. You didn't really introduce yourself properly either. Leash maniasis. I'm still not sure I'm saying it right. I guess sometimes in the heat of the moment, names don't matter. I know you don't know mine. For what it's worth, I am sorry it ended so badly. I mean, the scalpel to the neck was probably more painful to me than you. But the drugs, those slow, aching three weeks, 21 days, picking apart the damage like an old woman struggling with a zip. That, I'm sure, wasn't fun for you. I know your breakups aren't usually so aggressive, but I figured, given the circumstances, a decisive ending was for the best. I cried tears so salty I thought they could pickle you. I've heard from others that sometimes you disappear on your own accord. I'd say ghosting, but given the circumstances, that doesn't seem appropriate. I couldn't risk you coming back. I wanted a clean break, you see. I hope you don't mind. My friend said she burnt you. Burning cow fat searing into her leg seemed like a more painful option. She didn't have a choice. I did think about you, you know, towards the end. They even monitored my heart because of you. 
It didn't break, but if I think about you hard enough, it might. I thought about you as my blood flowed, analyzed to see how far you'd got under my skin. Drugs threatened to close my veins to you as I could no longer close my mind. You've gone. At least we think so. You never really know though, do you, with lovers that really bury deep? They have a strange habit of turning up again, unannounced. They still think about you, every day, in fact. They see your mark in the mirror, that random love bite, a mark of compassion. For I know you got under my skin and will get under others too, one billion potentially. I know I'm not special to you. Although please, next time, if you fancy a munch, do call before you pop over for lunch. That's special. That is special. I think that sums everything up, doesn't it? I mean, that got me a little bit sort of... I'm not going to lie, I, did, I was just looking at the floor like listening. It was... Yeah, that was amazing. What an ending. Oh, Thank you so then. much, Pip. There you have it. That was Pip Stewart. I feel so privileged that she chose to share that poem for the very first time anywhere on the podcast. So thank you so much for that, Pip. It was a brilliant way to finish up. At Pip Stewart is her Instagram if you would like to follow her on there. And Stuart underscore Pip is her on Twitter. She's just been exploring Japan, actually, and there's some incredible video footage of that on both of those platforms. So go and check it out. I am at BenShepard93 on Instagram and at Ben Shepherd on Twitter. If you go and follow both of them as well, you will find out the next guest on Why in the World before anybody else. Also, obviously, I want to hear what you think. Please leave us a little review if you did enjoy the episode. And I will speak to you again next week.